Good morning. morning. How's everybody this morning? Okay. My name is Dave. I'm a pastor here, and and by my count, I am the only pastor here this morning. Clearly a mistake in judgment. I get to make all of the decisions. Um, If you're a guest here, welcome. If you're from out of town, thank you for joining us during our Humidity Festival, (laughs) annual event here in Indiana. Um, Music is an integral part of our lives, is it not? I thought the band really rocked it this morning. I love that song, right? It's okay to give them some appreciation. They, they deserve it, okay? That's it. But really, since the late 60s, uh, with the advent of FM radio, or at least the commercialization of FM radio, we have been a culture that is very uh, music-oriented on our, in our radios and, you know, with technology and so forth. And, and that's kind of the age uh, in which, you know, I came of age during the late 60s and the 70s in this era of rock and roll. Uh, and I've kind of carried that on with my children. I, I raised my sons on... 70s rock and roll, as every good parent should, and particularly on Led Zeppelin, which was my favorite band. And if you know anything about Led Zeppelin and their kind of spiritual leanings, I may have some explaining to do about that at some point in time. However, and we're going to brag on my son a little bit, it was my son Jackson who was up here rocking it for the Lord just a few minutes ago, so there has been some good fruit from, from that as, as well. But, but music is, is, is such a, an integral part of our lives, and uh, I have kind of an algorithm uh, that I use when I'm driving in the car. When I decide, I've got five preset stations. Some of you are like this too, right? I've got five or six preset stations, and a song comes on. So here's how the algorithm works. There's one category of song that if it comes on, I absolutely listen to it. Done deal. Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones, right? Emin- some of you are nodding, some not so much. Eminence Front by the Who. Everything Led Zeppelin, we stay right there, we don't change stations, right? However, if it's a song of marginal likability to me, then the algorithm continues. I start flipping stations. Now, there'll be a second category of song where I absolutely will not listen to this song. Anything by Bob Seger or his Silver Bullet Band is just banned in my car. I'm sorry, if you like them, it's not me. And then in between is all of these songs of varying degrees of listenability, right? And so I'll flip through the five stations. There's no absolute listen songs. If there's an absolute don't listen, we skip that. And then I find the one that I like listening to the most, right? This is how I roll. Why is it that we like some songs and not other songs? And I'm not talking about genre. Why do you like rock and roll rather than blues, rather than country? But I'm talking about within the kind of music you you listen to, why do we like some songs and not others? Okay, now, of course, There's the standard American Bandstand answer. Some of you are old enough to remember American Bandstand. Saturday mornings, Dick Clark played popular music, the hit songs, and they'd always have a guest artist who would lip sync to their most popular song, right? I see some of you nodding. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. And, of course, the American Bandstand answer to, did you like the song, is, yes, I like the beat, you can dance to it. That was it. But we like songs for for more than that, right? Right? We like songs that, that touch us emotionally, that tap into who we are. For example, whenever I hear Can't Find My Way Home by Blind Faith and Steve Winwood, I, I immediately have the feelings I had back in my misspent wayward youth when, when trials and tribulations and bad decisions were prevalent in my life. Or if I hear Neil Young's Old Man, I immediately think of my father. 
relate to, that song just relates me to, to my father perfectly. So sometimes music taps into that emotion, right? But then there's other times where, where music moves us or shapes us. And I could, I could just look to the whole 60s, 70s era, the time of turbulence in our country where, where music moved us politically and socially in, in, in certain directions, right? And that's, those same things are true, and, and Nathan kind of touched on it a little this morning, Right? We don't want music to move us someplace we're not. But when music taps in to how we feel about our Lord, right, that, that is really where it's at. Or even, and, and we did a little bit of this morning, and I don't remember the lyric exactly, but uh, the, the lyric was something like, Father, you are all I need. I mean, in, in, in tarm, times of hardship, sometimes it's hard to, to get on through and, and, and trust God. But we do that, and music can help, us, can help us do that. And that's kind of what we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks. We're going to be looking at the Psalms. And the Psalms are songs and poems that kind of tap into some of those th- same things that our, our contemporary mu- uh, music does. It moves us to express emotion about God, and, and it shapes our, our emotion. For example, when I'm out in nature, sometimes it's hard to take in all that God has done and, and what he has done and the beauty he has given us. And then I can look to, to Psalm 8 where the psalmist said, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So that, that's what we're going to be looking at for the next four weeks. We're looking at four psalms which in varying ways tap into us because they are songs and they are poems, and they do the same thing that modern songs and poems do to us. They tap into us, they shape us, they mold us, and they move us. Now, there's some challenges in reading the Psalms, for sure. For example, we're going to lose some of the beauty of the word craft because we're translating ancient Hebrew into English. So we usually think of poems and songs rhyming. Well, the English translation is not going to rhyme as well, or we're going to lose some tempo or some structure. Psalm 119, for example, is 22 stanzas. Each stanza beginning with a different one of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and each verse within that stanza beginning with that letter. So we're going to lose some of that, that, that beauty and that, and that structure. However, we are going to experience all of the imagery and the metaphor and the simile and the hyperbole and the idioms that come with, with poetry. So we're going to have to kind of employ some, some disciplined imagination as we look at this. And we're going to have to remember that like song and poetry, a lot of this is figurative and not literal. So if you would stand with me, we're going to start today at the beginning with Psalm number one. Six verses. We're going to look at the entire psalm. It's on page 448 of the Bibles that are around the room. And the Holy Spirit says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for um, the great variety of ways that you have spoken to us, um, that you've told us about who you are and uh, your people through history, that you have, you have given us wisdom literature, and you've also given us songs and poetry uh, that we can grow closer to you and connect with you in that way as well, Father. We ask that as we look at this psalm, uh, that you would guide our thoughts, that you would move our hearts, that you would transform our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you've looked at the Psalms at all, you know uh, that they come, they come in a variety of flavors. And depending upon the Bible scholar you read, though, there might be a lot of different categories of, or a few. For example, some Psalms are Psalms of lament, Psalms of, of, of heartache, uh, the Psalms that David wrote when he was on the run from Saul, for example. Some Psalms are songs of praise and worship. Other psalms are, are prophetic in nature. They tell us something about what God would have us to know about what's going to happen. This particular psalm falls into the category of a wisdom psalm. In other words, it's a song that has taken themes from the wisdom literature, Proverbs primarily, but also Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and expressed them in, in poetry or song. These wisdom, this wisdom literature focuses on how the world works, what place we as human beings have in this world, and most importantly, how, how it all operates under God's creative sovereign care. So you might say in a, in a nutshell that the wisdom literature teaches us skill in the art of godly living. And so it's, it's timeless in that it applies 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, and it applies now. Now part of the timelessness is lost in the imagery, we, we will have to understand a little bit about ancient Middle Eastern agriculture now and again to understand the Psalms. This Psalm particularly is called a gateway to the whole book. Psalms is, is basically seen as the hymn book of the Old Testament people of God. And this first Psalm stresses that those who would generally, genuinely worship, genuinely sing these songs, must uh, embrace God's covenant instructions as a prerequisite. So the purpose of the psalm is to shape the thinking of the singer, of the participant, to want more and more to be people who love God's word, who believe God's word, and who seek to carry out its moral requirements. So this particular psalm, if you'll, if you'll notice, is divided into three stanzas. Each stanza has a contrast in it. This versus that. The first talks about values, the second talks about fruit, and the third talks about outcomes. But all of them point to this one thing, that there are only two ways to live. Two and two only. And these two ways are based on different values and beliefs. They produce different results, and they have profoundly different ultimate outcomes. Now, upon initial perusal of this psalm, if you've not read it or studied it before, it might be easy to read this wrong. It might be easy to look at the psalm and say, oh, obey the law and you will get stuff, disobey, and you will perish. Well, that's, that's certainly an oversimplification, but if we look at it, blessed is the man, says the psalm, who delights in the law of the Lord. Follow the law and you will be blessed. You will be fruitful. Verse 3, in all that he does, he prospers. But be amongst the wicked... Walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers, 
and the wind drives you away, and you will not survive the judgment. But there's a lot more to it than that. Let's look at the first stanza. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And what we're going to look at first, we're going to look at the positive. We're going to skip those three lines about counsel of the wicked, sinners, and scoffers, and just say, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. What, what is that actually saying? So this is some Old Testament poetry 101. When I taught AP government for 10 years, I would always have my students, I would force them, sometimes to tears, to participate in a debate. They would have to debate a deep constitutional issue. For example, resolved, the United States Congress should pass laws that completely revamp the presidential primary system. And in this election cycle, that looks like a pretty good idea, does it not? I might have trouble getting students volunteering for the negative on that, right? Or resolved. Judicial review, Supreme Court justices making decisions, is an undemocratic process. This type of thing. And one of the things that I always counsel them in their debate preparation is this. Define terms in your favor. And they would look at me and say, Mr. Ball, what do you mean define terms in my favor? A word means what a word means, yes? I'll go, well, yeah, and, and not so much. For example, if you're debating whether something is democratic or not, the word democrat, democratic simply means government by the people. Well, you could argue Supreme Court justices, they're not democratic, they're appointed by a president. That's not democratic. Or you could argue a president is democratically elected and he appoints justices. That's very democratic. Do you see how you can define terms differently? And so when we look at this psalm, one of the things we have to do is we have to look at this word blessed, or I think more poetically, blessed, right? What do we mean by that term? What does it mean to be blessed? What is the psalmist saying? For example, if I, and I did look up in the dictionary, what does this mean in the English language? One definition is blissfully happy or contented. Okay, when I first started climbing with my sons, there's a, there's a route down at the Red River Gorge, one of our favorite places to climb, called Working for the Weekend. The All routes have names, and it is burly. It, is, it takes some strength. That's it right there. That's distorted a little bit, but that's it right there. And three years ago, and I'm bragging on my son again, it's okay, because it's not me I'm bragging on, it's him. Jackson just climbed up that thing because he's young and strong and a good climber. And he gets to the top and he says, you, you guys want me to leave? The, there's like four or five of us in our group. He says, you guys want me to leave the gear up here so you can try this? And we're like, no, we're not going up that. You are crazy. But in my heart of hearts, I wanted to climb that. And for the next three years, whenever I would go to the Red River Gorge, I would try. And I would fail. And I would try. And I would fail. And on June 6th of this year, I climbed working for the weekend. Okay, I am bragging a little bit on me there. I apologize. <laughs> but the thing is, as I got near the top, not quite at the top, but near the top, I know that there's one last move where you got this sketchy hand over here and you got a high foot over here. You don't know what any of that means. Stick with me. And you've got to make this reach. But if you make this reach and you grab this hold, it is huge. It is money. It is gold. And you know it's over. You know you've done it. And when I reached that hold, I was blissfully happy and contented for about five minutes. And then I wanted to climb the route next to it, which is even harder. In other words, this emotion was fleeting and it was contextual. Is this what the psalmist is saying by 
blessed is the man? Something fleeting, something so transient? No. But another definition which you may have thought of is could be bestowed good of any kind. Don't we think sometimes of being blessed of, of material possessions, right, or, or circumstances? Okay, I have this trip coming up I've mentioned before in a sermon, and I'm going to be traveling basically for six weeks carrying everything I need in life in a car and on a camper. It's going to be my house. It's going to be my bed. It's going to have my kitchen. It's going to have my food. And then sometime during that trip, I'm going to get out of that car and that camper, and for four days, I'm going to put everything I need in life in a backpack, and I'm going to carry it into the mountains. And at some point in time, I'll be three or four days in. I will not have had a bath or a shower. I'll been carrying 55 pounds for three days. I will have just eating, eaten a dehydrated meal that's been in my garage for two years that I just threw some hot water on. I'll be eating it with a spoon that I have been cleaning by licking it for three days. Okay, some of you are disgusted. It's okay. And I will crawl into a tent that's not big enough to sit up in, into a sleeping bag, and it'll probably get cool enough that night that I will have to pull the drawstring of my sleeping bag so tight that only my nose and my mouth are visible. And as I lay there that night, I can guarantee you, I will say to myself, I am so blessed to be here right now. And some of you are going, you just described my worst nightmare. So in other words, this is all so... What does blessed mean, right? Well, what does the author intend when he says blessed? And this word is the same word as the Greek equivalent that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes, right? All of the blesseds in, in, in Matthew 5. And it is not a circumstantial feeling of happiness. It is not connected to material wealth or circumstances. The Holy Spirit's definition of blessed... Jesus' definition of blessed is a state of well-being in relation to God. That is the ultimate blessing. And that is what the psalmist is saying. Blessed is the man who has the relationship with God that is right. And who achieves this state of blessedness? Who delights in this? Or who gets this? Is he who delights in the law of the Lord. Again, we need to understand what are we talking about here? I don't always think positive thoughts when I think about the law. When I come out of a downtown business establishment and there's a ticket on my car for $20, I read that the tickets are $20. I read that on the ticket. (laughs) I'm not real happy with the law. If I'm driving north on State Road 37, say four and a half miles outside of Bloomington in the construction zone with a 45-mile-hour speed limit, I'm going 60, hypothetically, and I get pulled over, I'm not delighted with the law. When I spend 13 hours filling out my federal and state income tax returns to find out I owe one of them $1,500, I'm not delighted with the law. But if we think about it, the law is a very good thing. It allows us to move about freely and safely in our community. We can feel safe in our homes, right? In my same AP government class, I used to ask this question, what would the world look like if we did not have law? Because they always complain about speeding tickets and that kind of thing, right? And then I asked the question, what's the word to describe a culture in which there is no law? Matt Fields, anarchy. And I tell them, if we did not have laws, we would not be sitting here today in my classroom because we'd all be at home 
hunker down in the basement with our high-powered rifle defending our stuff from the hordes. That's what a lawless society looks like, right? But what's the law of the Lord? What did the author intend here? Are we talking about specific moral precepts? Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not bear false witness. Are we talking about the detailed civil and ceremonial law in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? What is the heart of God's law? It is God's instruction as he has spoken it to us through his covenants. Yes? God's covenant, as we are learning in Romans, is founded on one thing and one thing only. Grace. So when we're talking about God's law, we're talking about grace. So the blessing we receive, not one of circumstantial happiness or material blessing, but that of a right state with God is not something that is merited on our part or deserved because of our actions. It is based solely in God's mercy and grace. We are blessed because of God's favor. And blessing is available to those who delight in God's covenant instruction, for those who trust in what God has done and said in that covenant, and most importantly, specifically, the finished work of Christ on the cross, the heart and culmination of God's law. But there's more. And on his law, says the psalmist, he meditates day and night. Now, if taken literally, we wouldn't get much done in a practical sense, right? if we're meditating on God's law day and night. But remember, he's speaking figuratively. This is poetry. And this is discernible within the context of this psalm and the broader understanding of the Bible. What the psalmist is saying is, those who delight in the law, those who have placed their trust in Christ, are called to be holy. 1 Peter 1 says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's the grace. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Our approach to life should be one of facing all of life's situations with God's word in mind. Meditate on it day and night. We should understand and view everything that happens within the context, that happens to us within the context of God's Word. All of our reactions to the events of life should be guided by its wisdom. Every decision we make is to be rooted in what God would have us to do. Meditate on it day and night. Joshua reflects this in in Joshua 1, verse 8. Joshua says to the people, This book of the law, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Our knowledge of God's Word is to be so deep, to be at, constantly at our fingertips and embedded within us. Contrast that with the sitting with the scoffers who scoff at God's Word. So, so that is option A. Each stanza has a contrast. Option A, blessed is the man who delights in the law of God, who meditates on it day and night. What's the other side? The other option is the path of those described as in association with the wicked, sinners, and scoffers. Well, who are these people? Are they simply people who sin? No, because that would include us. It's a matter of orientation 
and perspective and approach. We go, we're, we're looking at a wisdom song. We go to wisdom literature. Proverbs 1 says this, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit. pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. And here it is. For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Therein lies the difference. Those who run to do evil, those who make haste, who live contrary to God's covenant instructions. And notice the increasing embeddedness that the poet talks about in Psalms. First, walk in counsel. Walk is kind of a temporary thing. Counsel is something that we can either accept and employ or not. But then to stand, to take a stand in the way of sinners. And thirdly, to sit to make your place permanently with the scoffers. We can orient our lives in one of two ways. We can choose one of two paths. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. It's one or the other. One is based on earthly human wisdom centered on self and idolatrousness. The other is based on a right relationship with God, a relationship created and established not of our own effort, but by God's grace and God's grace alone. So we can choose two paths. What is the result of that choice? What, what is produced from each of those two choices? The psalmist says this, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So here comes the imagery. The simile, he is like a tree. He who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. But he's more than a tree. He is a tree planted by streams of water. Now, in Indiana, trees are not a big deal. We have trees all over the place. In the eastern part of the United States, trees are not a big deal. It has been said that in the 17th century, before we came and chopped down trees and made cornfields like in Indiana, a squirrel, this is a handy piece of information you'll use later, a squirrel could start at the Atlantic Ocean, climb a tree, and hop from tree to tree to tree all the way to the Mississippi River. So dense was the forestation. But the psalmist is not writing from Indiana. He's writing from the Middle East, very arid climate where trees are are far more rare. And what does he say? This is a tree that is plugged in to that which gives life, planted by streams of water, and it gives life in abundance, not by a stream of water, but streams of water. And there's a direct connection to this, the delighting and meditating on God's law and being plugged in to these streams. And what is the result of this fortuitous circumstance? The tree yields fruit. Now think about an apple tree. And for some reason, I was thinking the Wizard of Oz when I was going through this. Weren't there trees that talked in the Wizard of Oz? Didn't they throw apples or something like that? Okay. Picture a tree other than the Wizard of Oz. Does a tree benefit from its own fruit? 
An apple tree does not eat its apples. Its fruit is for others. When a faithful person prospers, it is not for himself. Do you see how we're dispelling that initial impression we had that the psalmist is saying, hey, listen to God's word and you'll get stuff. Be wicked and you'll perish. What have we learned so far? The obedience that is suggested is not mine, but God's grace. The blessing that is suggested is not material blessing, but a right standing with God. The prosperity that is suggested is not for me. It's directed outwardly. And in fact, the prospering in this simile may not even be of the material variety. When we prosper in the Lord, we provide spiritual prosperity for those around us. Regardless, the fruit, the benefit, whether material or spiritual, is for others. What does the psalmist say next? Its leaf does not wither. While the fruit is for the benefit of others, there is a direct benefit for the tree. The tree that is planted by streams is sustained. This tree does not worry about drought. This tree does not worry about the heat of the sun. This tree is not concerned about the peaks and valleys of life. Jeremiah paralleled this, this uh, first psalm very well in, in the 17th chapter. He said this, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. And that leads into what the psalmist just said. It is more than just yielding fruit and not withering. In all that he does, he prospers. Jeremiah said, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Not only is fruit yielded, not only is it yielded for others, it is yielded in abundance. What about the wicked? What happens there? Well, pretty simply stated, the wicked are not so. They are not planted by streams. They do not yield fruit. Their leaf withers. The wicked are not plugged into that source of life. So what are the wicked like? They are like chaff. There's a word we use every day. Chaff. How about some Old Testament agriculture? Okay, we go out and we harvest the wheat. Here's what we do. We take it to the threshing floor. We find a large, flat, hard area. We throw the wheat as it's just been cut, harvested on the ground. Now we get the cows. We bring the cows in. We walk the cows around on the wheat. They trample the wheat, separates the seed, the edible, the product from the chaff, the covering, the dry outer layer. Then what do we do? We get our winnowing forks. We throw the stuff in the air. There's a breeze. The seed falls straight down right where we wanted. The breeze blows the chaff away. The useless, unproductive, unworthy part gets blown away into the wind. <clears throat> the wicked do not bear fruit. They bring no benefit to others, only to themselves. So the person who delights in the law of the Lord, that is the person who places his trust in God's covenant instruction, the person who meditates on God's law and is steeped in his word and can constantly apply it to life situations, this person is a tree. Not just any tree. A tree rooted in that which gives life and that life-giving rooting 
produces fruit, and this connectedness sustains the tree, and this prosperity that benefits others is pervasive. But the person who walks in the counsel of the wicked and stands in the way of sinners and sits in the seat of scoffers, chaff, useless, discardable, unsteady, unsustained matter that the wind blows away. Third stanza, two eternal consequences. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Four lines, three dedicated to the wicked. Let's talk about the one dedicated to the righteous. It says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And this is more than just has a knowledge of. Certainly, the Lord has a knowledge of the wicked. But the word here says this, for the Lord knows with affection and approval the way of the righteous. But what is, what is the end fate of the wicked? The wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. In the judgment, the wicked will fall. Sinners will be separated from the righteous. I'm reminded of Jesus in John 10 when he, when he said, the, the, she will separate the sheep from the goats. The end of those who choose lives outside of God's covenant will is destruction. The contrast that we have been making extend into eternity. I am not real clear. I don't have a real clear theology and doctrine of hell. I don't know if you've done much reading about that, but there's a school of thought that it is absolute physical agony for eternity, and there's another school of thought that the agony comes from just being separated from God. And, you know, I'm not sure, I, don't have, I haven't made a hard decision on that, but one thing I have read consistently is this that I, that I embrace, is that God does not send anyone to hell that eternity is simply a perpetuation of the choice we have made in this life. That if we choose separation from God in this life, separation from God is what we will get in the next. If we choose communion with God in this life, access that is only available by the shed blood of Jesus, then that communion continues into the next. But either way, the psalmist tells us Two choices, two directions, two ways to live. Now, if you're not somebody who has been a believer for very long, or if you're someone in here who's not a believer at all, you might be saying, well, Dave, <clears throat> I see all kinds of different ways to live. Jane and I went to a, a Cubs game on Wednesday. We lost 7-2. to We didn't care. We were at Wrigley Field. That's all that matters. And we were leaving the ballpark, and we were stuck in traffic. And it was one of those stuck in traffic where you just sit through two or three cycles of a traffic light. And I noticed next to me in a very nice car, could have been a Beamer, could have been a Mercedes, I'm not sure, there was a, a couple in the back seat, very well dressed, and they had a driver, right? And I mean, our cars were this close to one another, and it was a nice day, so my window was down. And the guy's, the, the husband, I assume, was sitting on this side of the back seat with his window down. First of all, I was very tempted to just look over and go. Hey, what's up? You know. But it was clear <clears throat> that this was a very prosperous couple. And I kind of wondered, you know, where they lived, you know, what he did for a living or what she did for a living, <clears throat> that they drove around Chicago in a nice car with a driver as a regular part of their life, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. In contrast to that, 
Um, I know a number of people who we lovingly term dirtbaggers. And these are climbers who work really hard at, like, say, a waiter or waitressing job for three months. They live in a tent while they're doing that so they can save enough money so for the other eight or nine months they can just go climbing, still living in a tent. Two completely different ways to live, yes? Or, you know, people who nose to the grindstone, that's their philosophy of life. Or you have people who eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So you could be saying, well, aren't there a lot of different ways to live? There are a lot of different ways to live. But in God's eyes, there are two. Whether you're in a Mercedes Benz or you're a dirtbagger, you are either living according to God's covenant instruction or you are not. And those choices bear fruit. Either you're bearing fruit for others and being sustained and being rooted in God, or you are chaff that the wind blows away. And those choices ultimately have an eternal disposition, either forever in communion with a holy, loving God or separated from Him. As we're learning in Romans, the communion we have with God is only possible because of a right standing with God, because of the finished work of Christ. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are about to participate in an important symbol of that peace as we join together in communion. We welcome everybody in the room who is a believer to join us here at Redeemer. We break off a piece of the bread and we dip it in the cup. We offer both wine and juice as your conscience leads you. The cup marked that has wine has got twine around the bottom. There'll be stations up here and stations in the back. If you're not a believer, we encourage you to take a little time to reflect on what we've talked about today, about two paths that you can take your life down, to reflect on the two ways we can choose to live. Uh, I'm the only pastor, so I'll be in the back. Find me if you have questions or if you want to pray. Let's pray together. Father God, uh, We thank you for the beauty of your word, the poetry of your word, how you can use language to touch our hearts in such a special way, Father. Um, We thank you that you have done what you have done, that we can be blessed, we can have a right relationship with you, that your word is not just rules to do and don't, but it is the message of grace through your son, Jesus Christ who has done the work, who has paid the price, who has made us right with you. Um, Father, be with us as we go out. Uh, May we share this message. May our lives reflect um, right living in connection with you. In Jesus' name, amen.